This is 50 Feminist States, a road-tripping storytelling podcast visiting all 50 U.S. states to interview feminist activists and artists about their work for gender justice. I'm Amelia Freeby, and this week, we're in Alabama. From the glaciers of Alaska to the dunes of Indiana, I want 50 feminist states. From the waves of New Hampshire to the skies of Montana, I want 50 feminist states. And when you hear the cold, you know so well, sisters speak out. Amelia here. Welcome back to the 50 Feminist States podcast. Thanks so much for tuning into season three. We're almost at the end, which is hard to believe. We've had so many great conversations and there are still amazing ones to come like today's. So today we're in Birmingham, Alabama, where I spoke to Tori Wolf Sisson, who is an organizer who has been like deeply embedded and working for LGBTQ rights for black, brown, indigenous people in the South for many, many years. Her and her partner, Shantae, were the first same-sex couple to get married in Montgomery, Alabama. Tori has worked with the Human Rights Campaign. She has worked with Alabama Coalition for Immigrant Justice. And more recently, she has co-founded an organization called Black Pearl, which works to cultivate wellness through visibility and economic development with Black, Brown, Indigenous, trans, queer, and gender-free women in both the rural American South and around the globe. So it's such an exciting organization, and we're going to hear all about it in today's episode that I cannot wait to share with you. Before we get there, just a reminder that you can keep up to date with 50 Feminist States uh, episodes and information by subscribing to our newsletter at 50feministstates.com slash newsletter. If you do that, you will get emails reminding you when new episodes have come out and cluing you in on things like the season long giveaway we have going on this season. So there are only a few weeks left to enter. All you have to do is rate and review the podcast on iTunes and you will automatically be entered to win a 50 Feminist States swag pack as I've been calling it. It's going to be a tote bag, a fanny pack, a bunch of notepads, stickers, pens, all sorts of 50 Feminist States uh, memorabilia that you have a chance to win just by rating and reviewing the podcast on Apple Podcasts. So go ahead and do that. Go ahead and sign up for the newsletter at 50feministstates.com slash newsletter. Thanks again so much for tuning in to season three. This episode is going to be especially exciting. And I'll I'll just say two things at the beginning. One is that Tori and I had to record um, remotely. So actually I was, we're both in Birmingham, but because of kind of a scheduling mix up, we ended up just connecting over the phone as opposed to in person. So the sound quality on this one will be a little bit different than some other episodes, but I promise that it is worthwhile to listen to all the same. Additionally, the first half of the interview is all about Tori's work and all about Black Pearl. And in the second half, Tori really kind of turned the mic on me and asked me some questions about my expectations of Alabama, what I thought Birmingham would be like. And then we were really able to share these sorts of ways in which we all have to work so hard to kind of see under the surface, particularly of the rural South and the ways that we have to look for things that are no longer there to see the histories that matter so much to people fighting for liberation. So I would encourage you stay tuned through the whole episode so you get to that part of the conversation as well. And I think it's just one of my favorite conversations that I've had over the course of 50 Feminist States conversations, which is like dozens of conversations at this point. So stay tuned to the whole episode. And for now, I'll go ahead and let Tori introduce herself and tell you a little bit about her work. So my name is Tori Wolfson. I am originally from Las Vegas, Nevada. 
And by way of being in Texas and from Texas, attending the illustrious Tuskegee University, I came to Alabama. Um, I am also the first field organizer for the human rights campaign in the state of Alabama. And so when our office moved from its location seven minutes away from the state capitol in Montgomery to Birmingham, it was a little difficult to make the commute from Birmingham to Tuskegee. And so I begrudgingly um, asked my wife if we could move and they kindly said yes. And so we've been here since 2015 here in Birmingham. We live on the west side in College Hills and um, we're here doing the work of trying to get free. From looking at just kind of your LinkedIn page, I can see that you're doing a lot of work um, with different organizations and it all sounds so wonderful. So I'm wondering, could you tell me a little bit about kind of how Black Pearl got started? Maybe how, if it built out of some of the other work you were doing with um, HRC or other folks? Yeah. So what I realized is basically every nonprofit is part of the nonprofit industrial complex, which is racist and sexist and transphobic and literally everything terrible. And so I've been working for, I guess I've been working in a nonprofit space since about 2010, where the first nonprofit that I worked for um, suggested that Black men who were not out about having sex with men were the reason for HIV and AIDS in our community. And when I pushed back, um, I was relieved of my position. Wow. From there, I worked with the um, the Black Belt Deliberative Dialogue Group, which from there we went through Macon County, which is the largest county in Alabama, explaining to people what happened during the United States Public Health Service study of syphilis in the Negro Mail which is oftentimes um, misnamed as the Tuskegee Syphilis Study. Um, And so that was kind of where I started to see some of the connections that I wasn't seeing before. So, for example, with this particular study, people often think that the doctors in Tuskegee were just giving away syphilis. That wasn't what was happening. People living, um, people living in the South were living, Black people were living beyond the time that white people were dying when they realized that they had syphilis. And so what the study was, was just watching people where the doctors, which is where we get the laws about ethics and medical consent from, is that the instructions to the patients were that, oh, we're helping you. And while we're helping you and giving you medication, we'll cover the cost of your funeral and we'll make sure that you get a hot meal. Um, And so in that space of noted, while we were studying and while we were going around talking to elders, I was, I had the complicated privilege, honor, and um, painful experience of sharing with 80-year-old, 90-year-olds what happened to their grandparents. I realized that there is not a lot of conversation about the women 
And if you're talking about any sexually transmitted diseases, you have to think about all of the people that folks are partnering with. Mm-hmm. And so I really, where I saw, and not on my own, um, our advisor, Dr. Muja Shakir, did some of this work in her thesis where they were naming, there's no mention of the women. There's no mention of the sexual um, the, the sexual practices that people were doing. Like there's no any, like we're talking about sex, but we're not talking about both people that are having it. And so that queer, I'm visibly seeing and being in space with queer people who are descendants. And then I think about the queer people, the queer men, the queer women, who as we're like swapping fluids, there's like no conversation about them, especially as they age and especially in black communities in the South. Um, But there's all of this like LGBTQ inclusion, fighting for our rights on the coast. And as being from Las Vegas, my LGBTQ identity didn't bother me. And so I just kind of like started piecing together like, where where are we? There's nobody's talking about us. No one's naming that we exist, but we're obviously experiencing emotional, physical trauma. We're experiencing disease, and we're not included in the conversation. And so that that was something on my mind. And I tried to start a gay straight alliance at Tuskegee during the time where our fifth president, Dr. Benjamin Payton was there. And before he left, he just basically named like, no, that's not, that's not necessary. We're a traditional school. We don't need to do that. And as I graduated, some of my mentees were able to take on the mantle um, and start a safe zone. It's no longer super active just because students are students and with the pushback that they received, it was kind of impossible to continue moving. Mm-hmm. But working for the human rights campaign and I was asked to stop black trans women from seeing their representatives for fear that they would scare them. That just continued to bother me that the organizations that exist for us are not inclusive enough for us to actually be free because it's it's impossible for us to have queer liberation in our lifetime if the focus if the political focus is on white wealth or if it's on the inclusion of white trans women with the exclusion of black trans women or gender nonconforming binary people it's just like it's and I like I get it that people are frustrated at all these like name changes and how people are identifying differently, but it's also beautiful that we're able to describe ourselves accurately and ask people to respect that. And so, when I was in Ohio during the elections, I was solid that um, 45 would be elected. Mm-hmm. On every single phone call that I made between the Ohio Coordinated Committee and the Human Rights Campaign call list, the majority of people were saying that they were voting for him. And so I wasn't surprised, but I also was thinking about the role that Black, Brown, Indigenous, trans, and queer people play, especially people who are um, identified with or are perceived to be women, how we're used in so many ways. 
but our voices are not heard. And there's also pieces of power that we take on that no one sees. So for example, like um, when, when there's a rally and it's the trans women who are taking care of the babies because no one asked for there to be a babysitter and there's just a few kids that are comfortable with one person and then everyone starts moving their kids over there and then that woman is our babysitter. There's little things that we do, roles that we hold that no one asks us to hold but no one tells us to stop. No one finds anyone else to fill those spaces. And so Black Pearl really arose out of all of these spaces where myself and my wife were discussing that we're, we're so much that we do that other people would charge so much money to hold space like this. There's so much that we do that other people would demand to be thanked or appreciated for and we're fighting so hard just to survive that there's not even the space to say thank you because by the time you, if you wanted to say thank you the person who you'd like to thank is already back at work because they took out 45 minutes on their lunch break to come support this rally or to go to the state or to do whatever that thing is that we've been asked to do. And so it's like there's this like this undercurrent of movement of just I do it because it needs to be done regardless of who did or didn't ask me to do it. And it just is part of the thing that keeps burning us out. And so we talked about wellness and healing and what that looks like and how we actually do it when we're living in this this really weird time bubble where like our lives are centered around the political calendar of the legislative season, the media circus of what's going on with 45 and every other piece of strange legislation that comes out of the South in regards to women, queer people, black people, people who aren't financially wealthy, um, and just like how do we how do we provide a space that we feel affirmed that we're able to heal that we're able to have time in community real genuine community without having to defend our existence that's kind of where Black Pearl comes from and one of the I think there's one day this year that really encompasses all that Black Pearl does May 19th of 2019 Shantae was one of the speakers for the Bernie Sanders rally. This is not a um, this is not an endorsement of Bernie Sanders at all, but um, Shantae was asked to speak about reproductive rights and Alabama. And so while Shantae did that on the podium, I and other people who are Black Pearls, and Black Pearls are literally anyone who is Black, Brown, Indigenous, trans, queer, women identified or leaning in this general direction in the rural South, this American South and across the globe, especially in places that our lives are at risk for being ourselves. And so we called on people like, hey, there's a Bernie Sanders rally happening. And immediately after that, there's a rally to, to name that we do need to have access to abortions here. And we staged the perimeter we held space, we 
provided a space of calm and of peace. We held an altar in the middle of Kelly Ingram Park, which is centrally located to the civil rights movement here in Birmingham. It's across the street from the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute. It's across the street from the 16th Street Baptist Church. It's down the street from the Foot Soldiers Headquarters, the Urban League. So in this space, we decided that we were going to hold this healing space while simultaneously another of us, Sean Kay, was able to hold that political space. And so one of the things that we consistently name is that we can't fight for equality and equity in the state house if we don't have health and wellness in our own homes. And that also means that we need to have access to homes and we should not be a large percentage of the houseless community. So I know that was long, but that is that is who we are. No, oh, thank you so much. That's like such a powerful story. And I really appreciate its many critical moments and like critiques, uh, the way it's born out of like issues, other spaces and how much space it holds for so many people that need it in your communities. I'm wondering that event on May 19th sounds so pivotal, foundational. Could you talk a little bit about some other things that Black Pearl is doing? It seems like you have a lot of programming. I mean, going through your website is just like a treasure trove of exciting and beautiful music and yoga classes and amazing people. So I'm just wondering, like, what else is Black Pearl up to? Everything. Right now, we are entering another season. So kind of the way, one of the things that we've been trying to do, which is really, especially, I'm sure, I'm not sure what the, um, what the political calendar looks like in Chicago, but in over here in the South, there's, it's this, it's like, it's so insidious. Mm-hmm. Um, so in Alabama, the, the legislative season shifts by a month every year for four years. So it's like, I think one, one year it starts in February, then the next year it starts in March, and the next year it starts in April, and then the next year it starts like at the very end of April almost. And so we try to make our calendar so that from, you know, from February to Black Pride, we're like, we're, re- we're ready, we're accessible, we're rapid response. We like whatever space is necessary for us to hold, whatever the need is, we try to fill it, especially in regards to our primary focus, which is Black, Brown, Indigenous, Trans, and Queer Women. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond from September on to February, we like we only do things that are already in the calendar. So right now, our major focus is we have a we have a student who is attending yoga teacher training, and we are trying to raise all of the funds so that she doesn't have to come out of pocket. Because one of the things that is really dynamic, and one of the reasons that we are focusing on yoga as a practice, is that we Birmingham is seventy two percent black. There are including myself, there are seven that I know of black women yoga instructors. Mm. Of these 
I am the only one who is openly queer. But I say that to say that we're, there's not very many spaces that are not just inclusive that we exist, but inclusive in this space that you know for definite, for sure, that your whole self is going to be accepted and affirmed and not just tolerated because of who is at the front of the room. Mm -hmm. And so we're trying to increase the amount of Black, Brown, Indigenous, Trans, and Queer women, gender non-conforming, fluid people who are at the front of yoga classrooms, because that also gives access to jobs. Because one of the, ultimately, our... Um, our mission statement is that we provide wellness through visibility and economic development. A lot of people, a lot of Black people, regardless of your gender identity, Black, Brown people are targeted by the terrorist police and law enforcement, which means that disproportionately, we're going to be checking the box. When people ask, have you committed a felony? Have you been incarcerated? And so at checking the box, that limits your access to jobs, which limits your access to everything else that you need to survive. And so um, we're right now, that is our biggest, our biggest focus is raising the funds so that she can um, be a full-fledged 200-hour registered yoga teacher. That's one thing that's happening right now. Another thing is that we're um, shifting the close date for our treasure hunt since the Black Panther movie came out a few years ago, we're like, oh, the Dora Milaje are super cool. Let's figure out how we, how do we do something with them? How do we play with this? And then Tanahasi Coates wrote or co-wrote the new Black Panther series, which has such a powerful Black queer love story that is leading the revolution. And it gives me chills to think about it because this is this is a perspective that we never get as black queer women at all um and so we're doing a treasure hunt all over the south well actually kind of all over the world we've got some spots in thailand and mexico and canada where um we're trying to share with people, share with other Black, Brown, Indigenous, Trans, and Queer people where some safe places to spend time, hang out, grab a coffee um, by way of our treasure hunt. So in the case that you see any Black Pearl symbols while you're here in Birmingham, just snap a picture and send it our way um, because that's, like, that's the point. We're just trying to share space because that's the thing in the south and in other spaces how and how we got to the international spaces while i was in while i was still working at the human rights campaign i was on a conference call where someone shared that they were replicating my organizing strategy in lima peru just before an election and i realized that the rural south is similar to a lot of places in the world where you have a urban metropolis metroplex in the middle and then spreading out are these increasingly rural spaces and because of the technological gaps queer people have less access to each other and are increasingly more isolated which is one of the lead causes to suicide and mental health 
issues. And so as the work that we do with Black Pearl, though on a large scale, it's, you know, visibility through wellness and economic development on the more micro scale, it's the visibility piece, because when you see people who look like you, you start to question your reason for, for desiring suicide because you feel isolated. You see people who look like you, you realize that it's possible for you to live and thrive. And so, so, that, so that's the thing that we're doing. What else is happening? Trap yoga happens every third Tuesday. There's so many things. I don't, um, Shantae is doing some um, financial literacy work with the Magic City Acceptance Center. There's so many things. I think, I think I might have covered the majority of the things, but I, there's always more. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's already a lot. I mean, all of those sound like such amazing things. I really loved what you said about hearing that your work was, your organizing work was being replicated in Peru and the ways that these knowledges can travel if there's visibility. It reminded me a lot of an interview I did in Arkansas with a collective there called Intransitive. And they did this trans-migrant storytelling event and they did like a Justice for Exana banner drop. And it's been so cool, I guess, now a couple times to hear organizers in these parts of the country that most people would consider, you know, really conservative, really Southern, really problematic, like thinking about organizing on a transnational scale. Mm -hmm. And that's like, I think really magical and powerful and also just like a testament to how much creative resistance is happening here. Heck yes. And that's the thing, like that's one of the things that pulled me here. So when I was little, I had such an idea of what Alabama was going to be. And most people, when they say that, they think these really terrible things. But that wasn't what I thought. In my imagination, Alabamians rode horses to the grocery store and they used George Washington Carver peanut butter and everyone loved peanut butter cookies and black people had Booker T. Washington dollars and coins and were operating with cooperative economics. Like I had this, that is, that was what I thought when I got here. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> most people's imaginings of the South are like, oh, it's backwards. People don't know anything. And I had these expectations of grandeur because at some point in some Black history, something I thought and maybe I thought felt somewhere in the universe conspired that it's the South that will show the world world peace. Mm-hmm. There's no place in the world that has had the type of history that the American South has had in combination with the types of relationships that are demanded to live inside of people's bodies. There are people who are neighbors with their great-great-grandparents' owners who are related to them, and which is one of the reasons why it's so important to know who's who who's related to who, whose cousin is who, who is the president of what, who has what, what organization, because it's almost, if you don't know, you won't realize how much nepotism is taking place for you to understand the differences between wealth and poverty. And so all over the world, 
we've been participating in these dynamic radical experiments for freedom and we're all related. And so it's like here in Alabama, one of the one of the things that strikes me is that in the heart of Birmingham, so I literally live in College Hills where I live is just like I could walk to Angela Davis's house from my house. It takes me seven minutes to walk it really fast. Mm-hmm. Um, we're right here in the heart of the literal blueprint for the civil rights movement in this state. And for some reason, we're not free. And so to me, it only seems right that black, brown, indigenous, trans, and queer people who have been silenced, although we've been the spearheads of every single movement for freedom, if it's gonna happen ever, if world peace will happen at all, it will happen right here. And so absolutely, the way that we've been moving and shaking and trying to sneakily get free, obviously get free, find each other, find each other in spaces that seem more conservative, like it's those, it's the storytelling, it's the connections that we make, it's partying, it's like, you know, being in real genuine relationships with each other and our comrades. That is, you know, that wrestling that becomes the cog in the wheel that Biogreston asks us to be. Um, it's, it's, it's amazing how things are coming so completely full circle that makes me feel like it's, it's coming, our time is coming. Only a few months ago, we were in meetings with some of the civil rights leaders who kicked out Biogreston. And so we're, it's 2019, 2020 is basically here. And we're still fighting the same fight, but the people who are at the front are different. And the people who are taking suggestions from us are the people who used to be at the front. And so I feel like the change, the creative change, specifically the creative change is what's going to be our saving grace. Mm, that's such a powerful and beautiful sentiment. Thank you for sharing. Feel like that was those were most of my questions. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about about kind of your organizing work or Birmingham that we haven't covered? What have you so what have you heard of Birmingham? What have you experienced since you've been here? What are you like I mean, is there is there anything that you had assumptions about or wanted to see or hoped for when you got here? Um, so I've only been in Birmingham since yesterday <laughs> and I'm leaving tomorrow. <laughs> so I'm not here for the, the longest time. Let me think. In my mind, Birmingham is like central Alabama. It's a key site in the civil rights movement. It has a long and embattled history. Um, I I grew up in North Carolina, so I don't hold the like negative views of the South that I think a lot of people in Chicago do. I always expect places in the South to be really diverse in like really beautiful ways and really problematic ways, really diverse, really segregated. Um, driving through Alabama, I think I was expecting kind of what I was wondering if I would see like old style like plantation homes or um or if I would see more like poverty I'm not sure if I really can tell either just from the highway driving I've been doing 
my biggest impression of Birmingham so far has been this city is so hilly that I had no idea that was going to be the case. Um, it's like the geography of it surprised me. I don't know if that answers your question. I don't, I don't feel like I had a lot of expectation, but some of that's because I'm just on this road trip kind of all over. And I work pretty hard to take places in as best as I can. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That, I, that was kind of rambly, but that's been my sense so yeah. far. That's perfect. So that, okay, so yes. You will not see the things on the freeway. And also, you will not see the things unless you're looking for them. Mm -hmm. But what I do, so, okay, so let me like state block with you. I was in Asheville a few last week and I was in um, Greenville, South Carolina a little bit after that. So, um, and some of the folks that knew, um, that knew that I was there last year were making fun of me. Because last year when I went, I started, like, looking for the hood. I was asking people, like, so where are the black people in Asheville? Where do we go? And I just, like, picked up this guy on the street and was like, hey, excuse me, sir. You seem like a beautiful elder. Would you mind driving with me so I can find some black people? And he like and he's like telling me, okay, like this is where the police normally are because this is where the stroll is. This is where, you know, these schools used to be predominantly black schools. Now they've been torn down or like now this school is closed and everyone goes to this school. So kind of in that similar way, what I've noticed here in Birmingham is that your navigation will take you out of your way to take you around the places that are more impoverished. Mm-hmm. You will have to, you would have to know where you were going on purpose to get to see the 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 whole the both sides of Birmingham. So Birmingham, like Las Vegas, is like a bowl. So if you picture if you cup your hands together where your um, pinky creases meet, that's about where Birmingham is. Mm-hmm. Where your thumb is would be about where Mountain Brook is and where your right thumb is, is about like Fultondale. And so Birmingham is, well, as like going back, going back, 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 this would be where a lot of plantations were like moving outwards towards Hoover. And so in Hoover, I feel like if you have time, there is a, um, there's one house that I can think of that's the quarters of a over, an overseer's house. And the, the family still lives there. It's really creepy and weird, especially the way that they are preserving these spaces and not preserving other spaces. But so that house, there's that house in Hoover. The Arlington house is closer to where I live, and that's also, um, that was a former plantation house. It's now been repurposed like kind of a museum and I could even be wrong about what its purpose was but I believe at this point it's a museum that also serves as like a community space it's not free but they'll like they hold events there and some of our um, elected officials hold events there for the community just because it is centrally located mm-hmm. um, there's I think the there is there is like a ridiculous amount of um, gentrification is happening um, as you so the white flight white flight went from Birmingham towards the Homewood 
Homewood, Hoover, Vescavia, Mountain Brook. Mountain Brook is one of the wealthiest places in America and by way of been one of the wealthiest places in the world. Whereas Birmingham, a good seven miles away, is one of the poorest places. Mm-hmm. And so it's this it's very it's very interesting that the way that the freeways are when you're going over the places that are impoverished you won't notice because the way that the freeway has broken up the community you can only really see the stores and the shops from where you're looking but immediately under the freeway is where there are you know homes that have been here since the 30s Mm-hmm. or people who have, you know, just been trying to keep keep their properties and the families and things aside from eminent domain, um, because, that, you know, that does happen sometimes. Mm-hmm. I think to see things clearly, I think that um, that space in Hoover would be good to look at. Mm-hmm. The Arlington House, um, Avondale, the Avondale area used to be predominantly Black, and now it is like breweries and like cookie dough bar and honestly I'm probably gonna go try it soon because I'm curious but yeah thank you for sharing like all of that knowledge with me and I'm excited to I was like rapidly googling as you were talking so I could go find some of these spaces (laughs) it reminded me a lot of I just read the piece in the New York Times 1619 project there was a piece about um like traffic in Atlanta and how the city's like major traffic issues are a result of this exact phenomenon you're talking about, the ways that highways are routed Mm -hmm. to make Black communities less accessible to everyone, including the communities themselves, and how they're created Mm -hmm. to enforce segregation. And so then it like having just read that, it makes so much sense to me to hear what you're saying about Birmingham. Oh yeah. Too. And if you go through Montgomery, Rosa Parks' house no longer exists because of this reason exactly. But not even because they built the freeway there. They tore down their house with the expectation that they were going to build the freeway there and they built it like a block over and tore down another community. Now, I could also be wrong in that, but, you know, what happens when you when you get a lot of your information? Some of this stuff is never going to be in a book. And so my degree is in history, and I love the oral history tradition. And so a lot of the information that I get, especially about the spaces that we live in here, are generally, like, from a collection of elders who have allowed me to sit and listen at their feet. And so, like, that's that's what, how I heard about Rosa Parks' house. So if you, if you go towards Montgomery at all, which you totally, I would totally implore you to go by there to visit the um, National Monument for Peace and Justice. It's not, you know, it's not necessarily the most fun tour ever, um, it is pretty heavy, but one thing I do appreciate about the outdoor portion of it is that the weight of the content that you're absorbing has a little bit more freedom to move around because it's outside and the way it's set up, it's, even if there is, you know, a little rain, you're still covered enough that you can still enjoy the experience as much as you can enjoy the experience. Yeah, uh, I was just there yesterday. Um, and it was raining the whole time, which honestly felt kind of appropriate. Um, it's a very powerful, somber experience. And I mean, it was, 
I think I share that feeling of imploring people to go, especially, you know, all the community I have in North Carolina. I mean, I went and found the counties I grew up in and they are, there are monuments there. And I learned the names of people um, who were lynched in that same space where I had lived and obviously never learned about because of structural racism and public schooling. But yeah, I can only second that it's just such a powerful experience. Yeah. Okay. So then, okay. So even without going back, let me tell you. So if you, if you were there, um, okay. So if you were there and the, the monuments, it's outdoors, mm-hmm. if you can imagine being where, like when you first walk in and there's like, you can see the, um, the piece where there's like hands reaching up, like they're kind of drowning. Um, that if you're standing right there, if in your imagination, you can just like bring your hand, like your right hand, just like straight, like, uh, like diagonally right where your mm-hmm. thumb that would be where Rosa Parks' house would have been like one, two, three, like four blocks over and a little bit to the left by, um, I think it's Edie Nixon's elementary school. I could be wrong about the name of the elementary school, but there's an elementary school and a boys and girls club right over there. Her house, well, her apartment were right there. And so where that freeway is, that where it like, you know, comes, I think that's either 65 or 20 or one of those, where it like goes, it cut through an entire community. And so that, it like you can you can tell because it's like it's like community on one side, community on the other side, swath of concrete, and like the houses are it's you know how like older people keep up their houses in a different way. You can tell mm-hmm. how long it's been there by how large the cactus are in the front and like these giant, you know, bushes and stuff. You can see where there were there's community of living here and then right like almost right under the freeway those houses that I would imagine families said no we're not selling but nobody was able to stay and live and keep it up those houses are like in shambles and then maybe two more houses down on either side are elders who have stood their ground and stayed and then beyond that it starts to flourish throughout the rest of the community it's so when you know what you're looking for you'll see it yeah this conversation reminds me of a sort of I've started experiencing this like grassroots um walking tour walking Mm -hmm. tours um Mm -hmm. that are trying to kind of share and map this knowledge in cities that are changing so rapidly. So I can think of, I went, when I was in Minneapolis, I went on a history of sex work in the Twin Cities walking tour. And we walked through downtown Minneapolis. And just like, at this point, none of the buildings are still there. But somebody who'd studied the history of it, where the spaces were, like pointed out historically where like the brothels were. And then we went all the way through like where present day, like dancers worked in different spaces and we talked about like who owned the clubs and what was happening and then all the money supported like organizations who were working to decriminalize sex work and so like that was a really powerful experience and then in Chicago I know that Miriam Kaba and someone else 
uh, we're developing a walking tour of Black women's history on the South Side. And so everything you were saying just reminded me that like that mapping those geographies, seeing where the past was and what's there in the present can be really important. And I appreciate kind of learning that, even just like imagining it with you right now when we're not in that space. Yeah, no, thank you so much. I hope you have safe travels. Thanks, Tori. I appreciate it. Thanks so much to Tori for making time to be on the podcast and to you for listening to this conversation. We have another great episode coming up in Alabama this week in Montgomery, where I talk to Adrian of Feminist Hot Dog Podcast. So be sure to stay tuned. Go ahead and rate and review the podcast to automatically be entered to win our giveaway. And until next time, I'll see you on the road. Estados feministas Thanks for tuning in to this episode of 50 Feminist States. You can find show notes at 50feministstates.com slash podcast and follow us on Instagram at 50feministstates. Special thanks to Danielle Sines and Jessica Neria for our theme song. Until next time, wild ones, we'll see you on the road.